How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm honored to be here today with Robert A. Caro who is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and biographer, and we are at the Robert H. Smith Auditorium of the New York Historical Society. Mr. Caro, thank you very much for coming this evening. Pleasure. Let's take people through your life story before we go through the two people you've written the most about, which is um, uh, Lyndon Johnson and then uh, Robert Moses, okay? So you're from New York? Yes. And um, your accent, (laughs) um, I would have thought that your accent. So I asked my agent when they were signing the contract to record one of my books, maybe I could read this one. And she said, then the price will go down. (laughs) You grew up um, in New York City and where? The east side, the west side? The west side, yes. Okay. And uh, your mother passed away when you were only 11? Yes. Your father was an immigrant from? Poland. Poland. So you went to school where in New York City? Well, I went to PS 93, but then I went to Horace Mann. And you must have done pretty well there. You went to Princeton. Yes. You knew then that you wanted to be in the, in the uh, newspaper business. Is that right? You were at the managing editor of the Daily Princetonian. Yes. So you graduated in 57. Did you get a job as a, a journalist right away? I got a job on the New Brunswick Daily Home News and Sunday Times, the voice of the Raritan Valley. And what did it pay you? Uh, $52.50 a week. Okay. That's why I took it. The New York Times offered me a job, but in those days, if you didn't have any journalistic experience, you had to go to work for them first as a copy boy, and that was $37 a week. And Einar and I wanted to get married, and we couldn't live So you thought on $52 you could get married? I I thought I could, yes. (laughs) So where did you meet your wife? At Princeton. So you... Worked for the New Brunswick newspaper, and you're doing the political beat, or what beat are you covering, the crime beat? With New Brunswick, first I was just a beat reporter. Right. The New Brunswick newspaper was very closely tied to the democratic machine of New Brunswick. It was so closely tied that the chief political reporter was given a leave of absence each election campaign to write speeches for the political organization. So he had a minor heart attack, um, so he couldn't do it. He wanted to make sure that whoever got the job, he was going to be able to get it back. And who was the most incompetent of the reporters? (laughs) Me. So I I went and I wrote speeches for, for this really tough old political boss. And every time he liked the speech, he would pull out a wad of hundreds and fifty dollar bills and peel off what seemed like quite a few and hand them to me. So I really liked this job. (laughs) But the thing that happened, he said, 
you'll ride the polls with me on election day. I didn't even know what riding the polls meant, but it means going from polling place to polling place to make sure everything is going the way the machine wants it to go. <laughs> and for that particular day, his chauffeur wasn't there. He was replaced by a police captain. I didn't realize why, but at each polling place, a patrolman would come over and report to the captain and my boss that everything was okay. But at one polling place, it wasn't okay. As we drove up, I remember there was a paddy wagon there, and the police were hurting, and not brutally, but nudging with their nightsticks, a group of African-Americans, young men and women, all nicely dressed, into this paddy wagon. And as we drove up, uh, the policeman was saying, we have trouble here, but it's under control now. I don't know that I had a conscious thought. I just didn't want to be in that car anymore. I wanted actually to be out with the protesters. So the next traffic light that we stopped at, I didn't say a word. I just got out of the car, but I came back and told Einer, I have to go to work for a newspaper that fights for things. So I made a list of newspapers that were crusading newspapers then, one of, and I wrote them all letters uh, asking and, for a job. And the Long Island newspaper gave you a job? Yes. You were then covering the police beat, or? I, I, well, you st I started working nights, which was a beat reporter again. I think we worked from 7.30 at night to 3.30 in the morning, something like that. But I very quickly, by a sheer accident, fell into investigative work. I was working for Newsday. Newsday only published six days a week, but they didn't publish on uh, Sunday. So the lowest reporter worked Saturday afternoons and Saturday night. So if a real story came in, he wrote a memo for the real reporters to write the story Sunday night. Nassau County was pretty well built up as it is today, but in the middle of it was a air base called Mitchell Air Base that was over 1,200 acres. And the Air Force had decided to give it up. But the FAA, which was taking it over from the, uh, from the Air Force, wanted to turn it into a civilian airport that company executives could fly in and out in their company planes. Newsday was campaigning against this, and I'm all alone in this big city room on a Saturday afternoon, and the phone rings, and it's a, an official of the FAA, and he says, I like what you're doing, and I know the files you should be looking in, and if you send somebody down... So it was the day of the annual Newsday picnic, right? Okay. So, Everybody was on the beach at Fire Island, and of course there were no cell phones. So I finally got an editor who tried, he said, well, I can't reach anybody. So he said, you'll we'll have to go yourself. I had never done anything like investigative work. So I went down there, and he met me at the door, I remember, and he led me down to this conference a room with a conference table right. and big stacks of files and just left me there. And I remember I worked all night, you know, it was, I just was lost in it. And I said, oh, I, I love doing this, you know. But I didn't know what I was doing. I wrote a memo on it <laughs> and I left it for the managing editor. Now, the, now you see my, why my books right. take so long. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. So the managing editor was this guy named Alan Hathaway who was out of the front page. He was a real character from the front page. And no one knew if he had actually attended a college, but they, everybody knew he hated graduates of prestigious universities. And I, in fact, was the first graduate of an Ivy League college who had ever been hired for his city room. They hired me when he was away as a joke on him. <laughs> And Alan refused to talk to me. And I'm sitting there every day, he'd walk by my desk and I'd say, hello, Mr. Hathaway, or hello, Mr. And he, he'd never even grunt. So the morning after the, uh, I'd been through the files, the phone rings early and it's Alan's secretary. And she says, Alan wants to see you right away. And I'm walking across the city room and I see he had a big, big head with a, just this fringe of hair around his back. The head was very red because he drank a lot. And I see this big <laughs> head bent over something. And I get to his door, I see it's my memo. And he waves me to a desk, to a chair, and I sit there. He finishes and he looks up and he says, I didn't know someone from Princeton could do digging like this. From now on, you do investigative work. Okay. So one lawyer says, with my usual savoir-faire, I said, but I don't know anything about investigative <laughs> So you like the investigative reporting. Yes. And you uncovered something in the files that... that... That the FAA officials were very friendly with the officials of these companies, and that's why they wanted to turn it into a private airport. But as a matter of fact, because of what I found... That, but I didn't write the story. Other better reporters wrote them. Because of that, Nassau County Community College was given this uh, campus there, of, I think 400 acres. Today, they have a, a, their student population, I believe, is 38,000 kids. So you really said, that's something a newspaper can do. So after you had that experience, you decided you liked writing about power? Is that no. how you came to the idea of doing something about Robert Moses? No, but I'm, how did, how did I, I don't, I, I'm going to try to answer idea? this really, really fast. Right. Robert Moses wanted to build yet another bridge across Long Island Sound. He had built the Triborough, the Bronx Whitestone, the Throgs. Like now he wanted to build a bridge between Roy and Oyster Bay. And Newsday had me look into it. And I looked into it, and it was the world's worst idea. I remember it would have taken the Long Island Expressway would have had to have eight additional lanes just to handle the traffic coming down from New England. And the piers of the bridge would have had to be so big that they would have actually caused tidal pollution in Long Island Sound. So I, I wrote, that's how I first okay. encountered Robert Moses. And then after you wrote that, what led you to think you should write a book about Robert Moses? Well, here was a guy, Robert Moses, who was never elected to anything in his whole life. And he held, he had some, this vast power, more power than any mayor or any governor or any mayor and governor put together. And he had held this power at the time for 44 years. And with it, he had shaped New York. And I, who am supposed to be doing political investigations, have no idea what this power is. And I realized neither does anybody else. And that's why I decided to do All right, this. So to get a contract to write a book, you'd never written a book. So how did you get a contract to write a book? Well, I knew one editor in New York. I only knew one. And I got a contract 
for $5,000, of which they gave me $2,500 in advance. Okay. And how long did you originally think it would take you to write this book? Nine months. Nine and months. I even told Einar, I said, you see, they're paying me for a year. It's only going to take me nine months, and I would get to go to France. How long did it take you to write the book? Seven years. Seven years. <laughs> okay. Now, um, in those days, you weren't that famous, so you weren't getting big advances, let's say. Well, one thing that happened was uh, I had written uh, about half this large manuscript, about 500,000 words, and I gave it to my editor. My editor was, wouldn't return. It took him a long time to return my telephone calls. But I gave him this large half a manuscript, and after a while, he called me, and he took me to dinner at a very inexpensive Chinese restaurant on Broadway. And I, I, I should have realized, you know, the implications of that. So he said something like, uh, you know, uh, we like the book, keep going. I said something like, can I have my other $2,500? And he said, words that are engraved in my mind, he said, oh, no, Bob, I guess you didn't understand. We like the book, but nobody's going to read a book on Robert Moses. And you have to be prepared for a very small printing. So we're not prepared to go beyond the terms of the contract. Even I understood what that meant. Um, to date, this book is now in its 55th printing? Yeah. Right. OK, but at the time, people didn't realize that. So did you go to another agent to help you get more money? And how did you yeah. get more money? Luckily for me. Very soon after that, this, edit this editor left the publishing house. So I left, could leave the publishing house also. So I had signed my, I didn't have an agent, but I knew I had to have an, get an agent. Someone gave me a list of four agents, and I went to interview them. And one was Lynn Nesbitt. And, um, who was then starting out herself as an agent. And she said something like, you know, I like this manuscript. I want to I'd like to represent you. But you have to tell me, I remember she said, but you have to tell me, what do you look so worried about? I, of course, thought I didn't look worried at all. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm worried that I won't have enough money to finish the book. And she said, well, how much are you talking about? I mean, remember, my editor had convinced me nobody was interested in this book on Robert Moses. And when I, whatever figure I said to her, she said, is that what you're worried about? You can stop worrying about that right now. I can get that for you by picking up this phone. Everyone in New York knows about this book. So that was the end, really, of the mon our money worries. So you finally finished the book in what year? Uh, 1974. And it came out, and it was 1,336 pages, more or less, right? If you say so. <laughs> okay. So, but how many pages did your editor say you couldn't put in? The book, as you read it, the third is seven hundred thousand words. Okay. But the manuscript that I gave him was a million fifty thousand words. So we cut out. Where are those other three hundred thousand words now? They're in tin trunks at Home Sweet Home storage. Where did the title come from, the Power Broker? That was the title from the moment that I thought of the book. Right. When you were starting to do the research, did Robert Moses say, I'm glad somebody's writing a book about me? <laughs> Not exactly. Not exactly. <laughs> so uh, how hard was it to get people to cooperate? Well, he, what he did was, you know, over the years, David, nobody had written the biography of Robert Moses. He had been famous 
for so long. The only book about him was like a PR puff job. Um, and yours wasn't going to be that, right? Well, he didn't know what it was going to be, nor did I. So many writers had started to do biographies or tried to do biographies on Robert Moses and had stopped. And I suppose because his PR people said to them what they said to me, Commissioner Moses will never talk to you, his family will never talk to you, his friends will never talk to you. And then he had a phrase, they had a phrase, I can't quite remember it, which was, anybody who ever wants a contract from the city or state will never talk to you. <laughs> So uh, ultimately, he did talk to you, though. Yes. How many years into the research before about he talked? Two, about two years. And how many times did you meet with him? Seven times. And did he tell you a lot of things you didn't know? Yes. He was, to talk to him was like, it was a revelation. In the first place, he was brilliant. I mean, he, and he remembered everything. So I, I think you had pointed out at one point he was heading 13... Uh, state commissions of one type. And the, the basis of his power was that he could run these commissions and they didn't have to go through appropriations normally? Well, it was, it, it was partly that, but it was more public authorities. Robert Moses, when he was young, thought he would be elected to something. He ran and he lost. He ran for governor, yes, but he lost. And he, ran, he tried to get the nomination for mayor, but he didn't get it. So what he did, he invented the public authority in the form we know it today. And part of what he invented was, as long as he was chairman of it, no one could ever remove him from power. The legislature, no one in the world knew what was in this legislation. And no one really could touch him because he was giving away so many uh, contracts and he was helping so many people make money off of these various authorities. Is that it? Nobody wanted to touch him? When we look at a bridge, we see a bridge. When he saw a bridge, he saw political power because he gave the insurance premiums, you know, as before terrorism, the bridge was never going to fall down or be blown up. So whoever got the brokerage fees was going to just be making money forever. He, get, he parceled out the insurance premiums on the bridge on the basis of how many votes insurance brokers controlled in Albany. The public relations fees went to the right public relations firm. So the book came out in 1974. Did you think it was going to be a big seller? Because a book of that length usually doesn't become a bestseller so quickly. No. And were you surprised it won the Pulitzer Prize? Well, everything about the book surprised me. Okay. So one that was so successful, did, did Robert Moses call you and say, by the way, thanks for the book? No, Robert Moses said, I'm going to sue. Okay. I mean, his, he said, Mr. Carroll has made hundreds of careless mistakes. So in, in a brief statement, I said, name one, and he couldn't. So in the end, your conclusion was he was more good than bad or more bad than good? He did a lot of wonderful things. It's not easy to answer that in a quick way. When he was young, the things that he dreamed of, like Jones Beach and the whole Long Island Park system, really magical okay. uh, additions to the public landscape. But his overall effect on New York City, you talk about neighborhoods, for his expressways, he just, I think I identified 21 neighborhoods that he had destroyed in New York for his roads. So let's go to Lyndon Johnson. You finished the book on Robert Moses. People say this is the greatest book. It's one of the best books ever written in terms of biography. I think some people have called it one of the best 100 books of the 20th century. All kinds of awards you've won. 
So you can write anything. You can go to any publisher and say, here's what I want to do. Why did you pick Lyndon Johnson? Well, in order to get enough money to finish the power broker, I had to sign a two-book contract. And the first one was a biography of Moses, and the second one was a biography of Fiorella LaGuardia. So the power broker comes out, and I, I couldn't stand doing this LaGuardia biography because I said I covered this in okay. the power broker. But I said, well, I owe the, I owe the publishers this book. They're not going to let me out of it. So I'm starting on the LaGuardia biography. And I get a call from my editor, Robert Gottlieb, and he says... Now, I know you're in love with doing this LaGuardia biography. He says, but I don't think you should do that book. He says, I have an idea for another book that you should do, Lyndon Johnson, and I think we should do it in volumes so we don't have to cut anything out. And I always, since I, I always felt I increased my advance by a lot, by not saying that's a good idea, by saying instead, I'll think about it. You've now written four volumes of that. Yes. Uh, the one uh, on the Senate won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. And uh, when you began to dig into Lyndon Johnson, how did he get elected to Congress? He went as a staff person initially, but then how did he quickly get elected to Congress as a young man? Well, he sees the congressman dies from that area. He's, no one knows who he is. He decides to run against better known people. But he works harder than anybody else. He gets elected to the House, but how does a young House member get to be close to the President of the United States? He got to be close to FDR. Yes, he's a political genius. He's been in Congress for three years. He's a junior representative. He has no uh, power whatsoever. He thinks that he has something that nobody else has. He is the only congressman who's friendly with two groups of people. One are the liberal congressmen from the North, and particularly the Northeast, but a lot of congressmen. And the other are the Texas oil men and contractors who need federal favors, oil depletion allowance, federal uh, contracts. He arranges it in a series of brilliant moves that all the money from Texas comes through him. And all of a sudden, everybody, it's 19... He distributes other members of Congress. Yes, he finances other members' campaigns. And all of a sudden, it's known in Washington, you want Texas money, you have to go to Lyndon Johnson. So he's pretty powerful, but he wants to run for the Senate. He runs the first time. What happens? First time, he loses. He runs again in 1948. Correct. How did he become so powerful so quickly? He rose up to be the leader of the the Senate Democrats in a relatively short period of time. How did he do that? Well, as I said, he's a genius. And um, in the House, he finds this way to power. So for 100 years before 1955, the Senate is basically the same dysfunctional mess that it is today. And um, then Johnson becomes majority leader. And for six years, the Senate really works. The Senate is the center of government uh, Creativity. It's not Eisenhower's civil rights bill. It's Lyndon Johnson's civil rights now, bill. Now, he's a master of the Senate. Yes. A person who's not a master of the Senate is John F. Kennedy. Yes. A senator from Massachusetts. Did Lyndon Johnson take Kennedy seriously as a potential presidential candidate in 1960? Oh, no. He thought he had contempt for Kennedy. You know, uh, right. Because Kennedy was a freshman senator when he was the majority leader. 
And Kennedy was sickly, you know, with Addison's disease, so he used to mock how thin his ankles were. You know, that, that's... So what, when the 60 convention is being held, Lyndon Johnson thinks he has a chance to be the nominee? Well, shortly before the convention, he suddenly realizes that Kennedy is taking it away from him, yes. And uh, when Kennedy offers him the vice presidency... Yes. Um, did Lyndon Johnson want that? And did Robert Kennedy really try to take it back? And was he authorized to take it back by his brother? Robert Kennedy did try to take it back. He comes down three times uh, that afternoon to Johnson's uh, suite, and three times he tries to get Johnson to withdraw from the ticket. The question as to whether John Kennedy knew about this, Robert Kennedy said, of course, he knew about this. What do you think? My brother took a nap when I tried to get his vice presidential candidate off the ticket. However, that is not really clear at all. So many people are waiting for you to come out with a book that you're very familiar with, the fifth volume of Lyndon Johnson's Life. Yeah. And you surprise people by coming out with a new book called Working. Um, is this uh, something you felt you needed to do before you got the Lyndon Johnson book finished, or why did you decide to write this one before the Lyndon Johnson fifth volume? Well, people ask me all the time what it's been like to do the kind of work I do, what it's like to interview people who sometimes don't want to be interviewed, or what it's like to go through a presidential library. What is a presidential library like? What are the presidential papers like? And I realized, although I want to do a, and am doing, a longer memoir, I said, I'm just going to stop for a few months and give people a few glimpses that I hope will give an idea of the kind of work I do. Okay, so you have not said when the Lyndon Johnson book is going to come out. <laughs> and you have resisted that because you've consistently said it'll come out when it's ready. Is that right? That's what I always say, yes. Okay, you don't want to say anything different, right? That's correct. Okay. <laughs> so um, you're going to finish the fifth volume of Lyndon Johnson, and then after that, you're going to write another book. Well, hopefully. Which is your memoir. Yes. And then after that, you've got another book planned on... Mr. LaGuardia? Al, Al Smith. Al Smith, okay. So, um, all right. Now, you're 83 years old today, or not today, but now. Um, but you're a young man because your editor is 88, yeah. right? <laughs> Robert Gottlieb. So, um, final question is, um, as you look back on your incredible career, what would you see as your legacy? What do you think people will um, think of what you've done with your life in, as, a, as an author? I guess my hope is that in times to come, when people want to know what political power can do for people or to people, my books will cast some light on that. Well, thank you very much for writing those books, and thank you very much. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.